Morning, Bethel. Our scripture reading for this morning comes from Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. It's Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. If you're using the Pew Bible, that's on page 1003. So please stand with me for the reading of the word. So Hebrews 4, 14 to 16, this is the word of the Lord. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin." Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. All right, you can have a seat. Thank you. Good morning, family. We are in the second week of a series during the Advent season. It's going to extend a little bit beyond the Advent season. Um, but during the Advent season, it's a series called We Are Pilgrims. You can see on the slide there. Um, a lot of you have family traditions where maybe you do some things, Advent readings during the month of December. The English word Advent just means coming. Okay, so Advent is all about the coming of Christ, and primarily the first coming of Christ is in view, but this year what we want to do especially is focus on the fact that we live between the first coming and the second coming of Christ. And we need to actually focus on both of those comings of Christ. So it's a great time to do that in the month of December and beginning of January. Um, whether the Christmas season for you is your favorite time of year or maybe one of your least favorite times of year, either way, this is vitally important. I know that for some December can be a difficult month. The holidays can be a difficult month to walk through. Um, it can mean the reminder of pain and loss. And it could be the pain and ache of loneliness. Um, so again, whether it's the most wonderful time of the year or the worst time of the year for you, we all will do well to focus on the one who has come and the one who is coming. So I read this blog post um, I think it was this week or last week, by a woman named Betsy Childs Howard, and she summed up beautifully what this series is about. So let me just read you this quote. Advent is about more than waiting for Christmas. During Advent, we not only remember that Jesus came to earth as a man, we prepare our hearts for his second coming. When we sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, we are not role-playing what the ancient Israelites must have prayed before the coming of the Messiah. No, we are praying that Emmanuel would return and make right all that is wrong with the world. When we sing, let every heart prepare him room, we are not retroactively chastising the innkeepers at Bethlehem. We are preaching to all of the souls within earshot to be ready to meet their judge and maker unafraid. Just when we would like to be the happiest, 
and yet some are the saddest, we remember that not only has Christ come, he's promised to come again. This life is not our only shot at happiness. It is a brief prelude to the life to come where we will find pleasures evermore. In the presence of Jesus, we will not regret anything we lacked in this life. If your heart is heavier than you'd like this Advent season, take hope that the joys of Christmas aren't ultimately what you wait for. The very best Christmas, and you can fill in the blank what that might be for you, the very best Christmas is a pale shadow of the rejoicing to come. So all of our lives, all of our life is lived between the Advents, okay? The two Advents of Jesus' coming, they're the two most important events in human history, and they have everything to do with how we live now. So we need to learn to live. This is what this series is all about. Learn to live how to look back on the first coming by faith, okay, centered on that first coming, believing all of who Jesus is and what he did for us because it's going to produce a kind of security and joy and give us strength that we need for living in the now and also live centered on the second advent, believing what is to come, anticipating it, and that confidence, that all of that future grace is going to work into the now and strengthen us to keep running the race that's set before us with endurance. Okay, so we need these biblical bifocals. I mentioned this last week. Biblical bifocals for seeing clearly first, second advent, and living in the present by faith. So the last few, books, or last few chapters of the book of Hebrews, no better place to do that, to see both the first and second comings of Christ and how important they are for living by faith in the present. So, otherwise we're not going to be able to see, see clearly to run the race that's set before us. So, um, in case any of you think, you know, to focus on the future and the second coming of Christ is like really impractical, you know, like he's so heavenly minded, he's not any earthly good, uh, that's exactly backwards. Okay, we're not talking about donning some white robes and going up the mountain and just kind of waiting for Jesus to come back. We're talking about how this orientation of life leads to resilience and stability and endurance. It's not at all defeatist or fatalistic. It ends up leading to deep and durable joy and buoyancy amidst the waves of life that roll um, and churn all around us. It's also not an isolationist mentality. We'll see this this morning in chapter 10. Rather, it's this call to be a glad company together en route to a common destiny. Okay? It's like the fellowship of the ring, only better. Okay? Infinitely more valuable, more epic quest than that. We progress together toward our eternal home. We help each other along the way, and we bring along as many as possible. So, again, Hebrews is great for this. Um, the book is all about the first coming, his superiority and preeminence and all that he's done for us, and it's all about the glory of his return and the great reward that awaits us. So when you lose your way, this, again, this is not just like this cute little thing for Advent. This is so, like, blood earnestly practical 
We all lose our way. We all drift. We wander. We, we just we get distracted. What do you do? Well, if you're like lost in the woods, you, you want to find some points to orient yourself, right? Well, just imagine like this world is like a wilderness. When you lose your way, when you're feeling lost, when you're struggling on this race that's set before you, you get, you get your bearings. We get our bearings by orienting ourselves to two mountains, Calvary and, as we'll see on Christmas morning, Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem. That's how it talks about it in chapter 12 at the end. So the first coming and the second coming. I mean, Ellie illustrated this in her talk yesterday. I mean, how in the world do you hang on and endure that kind of deep suffering, especially when there's no guarantee of healing in this life? Well, you do so by looking to Jesus in all that he's done for you and looking to Jesus of what he will do one day when he returns and set every, sets everything to rights, when there's not going to be any more tears or crying or pain anymore. So she illustrated this kind of living between the advents yesterday as she spoke. So also, one last thing here before we dive into the text. Um, we're not the first generation to struggle to run the race that's set before us. So I want to recommend a couple of books and give them away, okay? So Pilgrim's Progress, we are pilgrims, you know, it's appropriate. If you've never read Pilgrim's Progress, here you go. So I'm just going to leave these right here in the second pew. Um, if you're going to read it, if you're willing to read it, great, it's there, take it. And then this one is the little Pilgrim's Progress. So if you've got kids, this one's awesome. It's rewritten, and rather than Christian being a man, Christian's a boy. And it's so well done. Um, our kids loved it when we read it. So there's two copies of that. Just encourage you um, as we consider these themes, that could be an encouragement to you personally or to your family. All right. Well, actually, one more thing. But you know what the full title of The Pilgrim's Progress is? It's great. The Pilgrim's Progress from this world to that which is to come, the manner of his setting out, his dangerous journey, and safe arrival at the desired country. Um, that title, like, comes from Hebrews or something, you know? All right, so let's go ahead and turn there, if you're not there already. And Tyler read from chapter 4. We will come back to that near the end. It's a really important parallel passage, but we are going to look at chapter 10. I mentioned it last week. Last week was chapter 9. This week is chapter 10. Next week is chapter 11. Week after that, chapter 12. Actually, two in chapter 12, and then... The first of the year, Tyler's going to close the series with Hebrews 13, a passage from that chapter. All right. So chapter 10, if you are using the Pew Bible, it's on page 1007. And we are actually going to start near the end of the chapter. We're not going to cover the whole chapter, um, but we're going to start near the end of the chapter in verse 32. Um, there's an outline in the bulletin. You'll see the, the slides up here, uh, four points. The first one is we have need of endurance uh, because Jesus is coming. So look with me at verse 32. <clears throat> but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. 
For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. We'll stop there for a second. So what's going on here? A little bit on the situation. Obviously, this writer is addressing a specific group of people with a specific story, their situation. And they were in danger of drifting. They started out really well, but they were in danger of drifting away from Jesus, from focusing and fixing their eyes on him and running the race that was set before them. So he says, hey, recall the former days after you were enlightened, the light turned on and you saw your need for Jesus and who he was in all of his glory and you trusted in him. When that happened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. You were sometimes publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, just like Jesus was, and sometimes being partners with those who were so treated because you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. What's that all about? Well, if following Jesus meant reproach and maybe even suffering and imprisonment, prisons back then didn't mean you got three squares automatically and a workout room. And I'm not saying prison you know, conditions are good. I'm saying if you didn't have friends who brought you your food, you died in prison. But guess what? That's a little risky to go bring food to your friend in prison because uh, then I'm identified with them. And if they threw that Christian in prison, then maybe they're going to throw me in prison. And then who's going to bring me food? It's risky love. And they did it. So they had compassion on those in prison at the risk of their own safety, comfort, and maybe their own life. And they even, not like stoically, you know, grin and bear it, but they joyfully accepted the confiscation of their property. So this might seem like light years away from us, and maybe to some degree it is. But this happens to our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world, it's happening right now. So I just recently got the Voice of the Martyrs magazine, and this story was in it. In 2008, Hamida lived in Mosul, Iraq, with her husband and four boys. They were the only Christian family in their neighborhood, but until that time had lived in peace with their neighbors. On October 4th, she heard gunshots down the street. Their 14-year-old son, Zaid, had just received a new cell phone, and he wanted to show his friends. And a few minutes later, a car pulls up, and three Muslim men step out and say, are you a Christian to Zaid? And before he could finish saying yes, they shot him three times and killed him, drove off. So after the funeral, Hamida and her husband moved eight miles north to Telskuf, a predominantly Christian town, Their three older sons fled the country in fear that they'd be targeted next. Hamida and her husband lived in Telskuf until August of 2014, just days before it was overrun by ISIS. They received updates on their home from a Muslim neighbor and eventually heard that ISIS had taken everything from their house. So what what if that's you? How do you respond? Losing everything, the confiscation of your property precisely because you're following Jesus. 
Well, back to Hebrews here. You endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated, for you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. How in the world do you do that? Joyfully accept the plundering of your property? Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. That's how. You've got to know something. You've got to know you have something. They were confident that something greater and out of reach of their enemies was theirs. That's what enabled them to joyfully accept the confiscation of their property. And so, in this moment, when they are drifting and in danger of drifting and losing that confidence, the writer says, therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. So you can imagine how this goes. Like, if you suffer like they did, whatever the suffering might be, you can start to wonder if it's worth it. Like, is this all true? Does God really even exist? Is he the rewarder of those who seek him? Your faith starts to falter and fail. You're just not confident anymore. And if that happens, you won't run the race that's set before you with endurance. You're going to pull up, slow up, drift, You may cave, you may shrink back because you don't want to invite any more suffering or loss. It's a dangerous trajectory. And so this writer is lovingly arresting the attention of his readers. They have need of endurance, and so do we. Because he wants them to receive the things promised and obtain the great reward that's theirs through faith in Christ. So again, chapter 2, therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard lest we drift away from it. Now, verse 36 continues, for you have need of endurance so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. It's that better and abiding possession, actually receiving it. Because, verse 37, yet a little while and the coming one will come, second advent, and will not delay. But my righteous one, hopefully that's us, any Christian is who that's talking about, my righteous one shall live by faith. If he shrinks back, so you can either live by faith or you can shrink back. Those are two different categories. If he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So look at that language carefully. And he's quoting from Habakkuk here. Habakkuk was struggling with God because of the suffering that was facing the people of God. And he said, Lord, aren't you going to do something? And the Lord said, yeah, I'm going to do something, but you're not going to like it. But the righteous will live. They will They will make it through by faith, so trust me. And Habakkuk comes around. He struggles with that, but he comes around and trusts the Lord. So it's quoted here, and listen, yet a little while, the coming one will come. Jesus is going to come. He will not delay, 
And for you and I, we have need of endurance. We become righteous by faith in Jesus. It's a gift. It's not of ourselves. It's not of our own doing. It's not our performance. It's the performance of Jesus. We receive that. We receive it by faith, but we live by faith, trusting in the Lord day by day. My righteous one will live. How are you going to live? How are you going to keep running? How are you going to endure and not drift? It's by faith. But if you shrink back in unbelief, that doesn't please God. But then he says to these folks, he says, we're not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. We have need of endurance. He who endures to the end, the Bible says, will be saved. We must endure. Do you realize that? Like, Christianity is all about salvation as a gift, but when that salvation comes to us, when it's real in us, we are made new from the inside out, it means it's going to stick. And so if we start to wander and we hear a warning, because we're real, we go, oh, and we get back on the path. So even warnings are a grace to Christians. Pastor Tyler touched on it a couple weeks ago in Revelation 21, where it says, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God and he will be my son. Or Jesus warned us when he says, because lawlessness will be increased in the future, he's saying things can get hard, you're going to have tribulation and trouble in this life. Because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. That's sobering. And then he says, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. So here at Bethel, we believe wholeheartedly in the perseverance of the saints. But listen, we believe in the perseverance of the saints. It's not called the cakewalk of the saints. Okay, it's not called the coasting of the saints into heaven. Real faith is a gift. It's all of grace from beginning to end, but real faith fights and endures and conquers and holds on because we have a better and abiding possession and we don't want to throw that away. There is a reward and a glory that outweighs all the suffering of this life it's worth it. The gain is worth the pain. We hang on and endure by means of our confidence in that coming reward. This isn't wishful thinking. It's real, and we can have confidence in the promises and the hope that God gives us. So if it costs us our possessions, no matter. We have a better and abiding possession. We have fullness of joy forever, like Psalm 1611 says. I mean, why are we never satisfied here on earth? The best things in this life are not big enough, they're not great enough, or they don't last long enough. So we have an ache deep, deep in our souls. We have this longing for joy, for peace, contentment, life that's we're longing for something that's of infinite quality and infinite quantity and duration. And that kind of ultimacy is just not to be found in any earthly thing. So we're always disappointed or sad or frustrated or left with a bad taste in our mouths. 
but it's because we were made for joy in God and in his presence is fullness of joy, Psalm 1611, forever. Fullness, quality, forever, quantity. So this text is here to bolster our confidence in that eternal coming reward so that we keep running the race with endurance all the way home by faith. And as we run, we can, like when we're confident, as we run, we can lay our lives down in risky love because not even death can take away that better and abiding possession. Not even death can take away that life. Right? We can lose our possessions because nothing can take away our better and abiding possession. No one can take God from us. The city with foundations. The eternal home. So you can see how this all boils down to living by faith. That's why the very next verse, and we have these chapter divisions, but the very next verse, 11.1, is now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. And faith boils down to believing that God is, it's all true, and that he is the reward and the rewarder of those who seek him. Look at Hebrews eleven six. Without faith, it's impossible to please him forever. Would draw near to God, must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So if you don't believe God is the rewarder, if you don't think it's worth it, what are you going to do? You're going to shrug your shoulders and you're going to just wander off. You're going to drift off. So we have need of endurance. And the writer here is fighting for our faith so that we have confidence in these things that are true so that we can hold on and keep running. We have need of endurance. I mean, this can be somewhat sobering, a little scary, but... We don't have to fear God in the wrong sense. I mean, we can reverence him and respect him, absolutely. But what we should really fear is unbelief. We should really fear the deceitfulness of sin, the stuff that would cause us to drift off, fear growing cold and drifting away. And so the book of Hebrews, for all of its sober warnings, is actually all about bolstering confidence in the grace of God through Christ. It's actually confidence that we need if we're going to have endurance. So we have need of endurance. Jesus, has, Jesus is coming. Second point, we have need of confidence. Um, he has come so that we can have that confidence. So <clears throat> before we read verses 19 to 25, just think with me here. You realize that this world, the entire universe in a sense, is a temple. The earth is the Lord's. He's the creator of all things. He's the owner of all things. And he made this whole creation for a purpose so that we, the image bearers, people that are made in his image for relationship with him, we can enjoy him and glorify him forever. And what did we do? Adam and Eve started it. We've all followed suit. We took his gifts and we prostituted them. We've selfishly used his gifts for our own selfish purposes. It's like we've said, I like your gifts. I'll take those, thank you, but please, just, would you leave me alone now? Except maybe to bless my me at the center, you at the periphery plants. That's what we've all done. I mean, it's like a fiancé 
receiving the engagement ring, or the girl receiving the engagement ring to become the fiancé, and saying, okay, this is actually what I wanted. I'm not interested in you anymore. That's insane, because the ring is just a token of the real thing, like the real love, right? So sin is not just breaking some rules. It's cosmic infidelity. It's cosmic embezzlement. It's cosmic treason. It's like a cosmic coup, like hostile takeover, or at least we try. So, okay, now you're all guilty of all that, and so am I. And our number's up. And we're told to draw near to the king, the God that we've revolted against. How's that going to go for us? I mean, we're not just coming to some mighty pharaoh over a vast kingdom in the Middle East. We're not coming to, to some president. We're not just coming to some king or dictator. We're drawing near to the omnimax God, omnipresent, omnipotent, you know, omni-everything. And he's a consuming fire. White, hot holiness is what we're talking about here. And the justice that awaits that kind of insurrection is just fearsome to think about. So how are we going to face him? But what if that God had first come to us? And instead of coming in omnipotent wrath, he came in meekness and mercy. And he did it all to absorb that, like, chilling wrath that we deserve to pay in hell. And what if he did it all once for all, paying for all of our cosmic infidelity, all of our cosmic embezzlement and treason and pride and selfishness and misplaced love and complaining and, and lying and gossip and anger and covetousness and bitterness and lack of forgiveness and lust and manipulation and on and on. And what if all the just wrath for all that sin was totally, totally spent on Jesus. On the cross. Once for all. And what if Jesus made a way for us to approach the throne of God and he turned it from a throne of judgment to a throne of grace? And what if his blood can wash away our sin and completely cover our guilt and shame and do it fully, full atonement, now and forever? And what if he sits now at the Father's right hand, having completed the work of justification, our purification, making us right with God? What if he intercedes for us now and forevermore, every day of our life, as our great high priest? What, I mean, what if... Look at verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, here it is. Like all of the book of Hebrews has been leading up to verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, baptism. Let us hold fast 
the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So why in the world would we let go of this hope? Why in the world would we doubt the faithfulness of this God to bring us all the way home? Romans 8.32, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things, all that we need to make it all the way home? Or Romans 5.8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. He's going to bring us all the way home. So verse 24, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So Jesus has come and the whole book of Hebrews is just saying it's all about who Jesus is and what he's done. It's intended to breed this confidence where you can approach God because you're at peace with him. He's for you, not against you. God wants to bolster our confidence in the gospel so that we can draw near to the throne of grace and hold fast to our God of grace, finding grace to help us in our need, like chapter 4 says, so that we can endure. So big picture, we have need of gospel confidence, and that comes from focusing on the first coming, because we have need of pilgrim endurance. We have need of gospel confidence, because we have need of pilgrim endurance all the way till the end, because this life is hard. So confidence is needed for endurance. And we have need of pilgrim endurance, so we have need of blood-bought gospel confidence. So don't throw away that confidence. Feed it. Doubters in God's goodness and grace become drifters. I'm not saying that all doubt is bad or it's not okay to you know, struggle or anything like that. That's another sermon. What I'm saying is that doubting God's goodness is corrosive and it will eat away your confidence. And if you have no confidence, you're going to drift. So if you throw away that confidence, you will throw away your strength to endure. So we must, point three, hold fast and hold on. These last two points are going to go quickly, but they are very important, okay? So, Again, if you're going to hold on, endure, you need to hold fast. Hold fast to your confession is what the passage says. So what we're holding fast to what we say we believe. So what are you grasping on a regular basis? Like what are you most set on holding on to? in your average day, in your average week? What are you grasping for Monday through Friday? What are you grasping for on the weekend? We're always grasping for things. We're always holding on to things. We're often grasping for the wrong things. Listen to Jonathan Edwards. He said, "If we, this is the Christian pilgrim. I mentioned it last week, and I will get it out there. Um, probably maybe even email the thing to everybody. 
Jonathan Edwards, if we spend our lives in the pursuit of a temporal happiness as riches or sensual pleasures, credit and esteem from men, delight in our children, the prospect of seeing them well brought up and well settled, etc., all these things will be of little significance to us. Death will blow up all our hopes and will put an end to these enjoyments. And then... Where will be all our worldly employments and enjoyments when we are laid in the silent grave? I mean, what if, you know, we're always grasping things. What if we were always, or at least a whole lot more often, grasping for and holding on to the right things? I mean, think about this as a daily activity. Holding on, enduring by holding fast our confession, holding fast to the truths of the gospel. We need to seek for it to be more real. So there can be this confession that's kind of like this stuff in our heads, but if we're really going to grasp it so that it strengthens us to endure, it needs to be real to us. So we can't be passive with this. This isn't a small thing. This, this reward, this confidence in the future Jesus' second coming and all that will mean. I mean, think about it this way. We don't think much of heaven because we don't think much of heaven. If you don't think much of heaven and hope for it, long for it, eagerly await it, it must mean, eh, you don't think much about it in terms of value. That would be something to fight against. Right? That would be something to approach the throne of grace to receive mercy and help in our time of need. Lord, this is so unreal to me. These temptations feel so real to me in this life, and heaven and all those promises and the rewards seem so ethereal. Okay, now you're fighting for your faith. So this needs to be a daily thing so that we're grasping and holding on to the right things. Confidently looking to the reward is a major part of how we endure. So we need to pray, approach the throne of grace, for grace to strengthen our grip on the gospel, hold fast our confession, grasp grace. So what are you laying hold of every day? This is why we read the Bible, not to check off a box. This is why we do fighter verses. It's why we read books like The Pilgrim's Progress and other good Christian books. It's why we gather like this. It's why we do community groups. It's why we come to this table, because we need to lay hold of more grace so that we can have confidence to endure. And we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. So let us hold fast our confession. We don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. So let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And finally, as we grasp for grace to hold on, to hold fast so that we can hold on, we're called to help each other. So I'm just going to read two quotes, passages from Hebrews, and then one quote from Jonathan Edwards, and then we will gather around the table together. Hebrews 10.24, look at it there. And let us consider how to stir up one another 
to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of sun. Sunday mornings are really important. Community groups are really important so that we can help each other on this pilgrim path. But encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And then Hebrews 3, if you want to flip back there, very similar passage, really important. In fact, this is like a banner over our community groups, why we do them. Hebrews 3.12, take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. It's a daily threat. So, exhort or encourage one another every day, regularly, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So Jonathan Edwards wrote, let Christians help one another in going this journey. There are many ways whereby Christians might greatly forward one another in their way to heaven. Therefore, let them be exhorted to go this journey as it were in company, conversing together and assisting one another. Company is very desirable in a journey, but in none so much as this. Let them go united and not fall out by the way, which would be to hinder one another, but use all means they can to help each other up the hill. This would ensure a more successful traveling and a more joyful meeting at their Father's house in glory. So we have need of endurance, and we have need of confidence so that we can endure. So we need to hold fast so that we can hold on, and we don't do that in a vacuum. We don't do that on a, an island. We do that together, and we help each other. So we need to help each other, family, all the way home. And so we gather together around this table. This table is a great picture of that Hebrews 4 approaching the throne of grace with confidence to receive mercy and find grace to help us in our need. You're probably coming in struggling with something. You can come with confidence with Jesus as your high priest because he made a way. You can come with confidence. There is mercy and grace to be found to meet your need. So we come and feed on that. We grasp on that, and we will not let go. <laughs> so I hope you come grasping to the table now. So if the men who are going to serve could come forward, and the musicians as well. Father, we thank you so much for this amazing grace that you have poured out on us through Christ that we, these cosmic rebels, could have confidence to approach you and draw near and have mercy and grace to help us all the way home is its just amazing. And I pray that we would come for more of it. We need it. Lord, we need you to strengthen our confidence in you and in your promises. We may need to 
let go of some things that we've been grasping at. We may need to throw some things from us so that we can lay hold firmly on your grace. So where we need to repent and just lay things aside, help us to do that. Where we are weak and tempted and, and drifting, would you help us to lay hold of more grace that's offered through Christ? And I pray that we'd be filled with confidence, not in ourselves, but in you, because of what you have done and what you are going to do. And I pray that that would strengthen us for the, the road to come. In Jesus' name. Amen.